Before we begin, just to let you guys know, our logo artwork was designed by Nicole Anarchy and music by Taylor Paisley French. Warning, this podcast does contain spoilers for the Verse series. Echoes of the Past is out and available for order on all the platforms that you could read an ebook on. It is the prequel setup short story to the Into the World series and it is available to purchase to purchase to purchase link in the episode show notes. Hello everyone and welcome to the Best Out of Camp, a Ron Verse read-along and analysis podcast that sends out to read all the books by Rick Riordan in timeline order. I'm your host Fran and welcome to the show. Today we continue our timeline journey with a bonus story from the Demigod Diaries, Son of Magic. Fun fact, this story was actually written by, and I apologise if I say this wrong because this would seemingly be pronounced differently here in the UK, so I don't know how it's pronounced in the US, by Hayley Riordan, Rick's son, when they were 16 years old. Now, I do want to put ahead of here that, yes, I am going to be critical, because obviously this is a critical analysis podcast, um, but I want to commend Hayley for writing a great short story at such a young age. Um, as someone myself who's been writing for over a decade now, starting, oh god, probably more, yeah, more than a, no, yeah, over a decade is correct, oh my god, you wouldn't think, would you? You wouldn't think. <laughs> um, I can always appreciate someone who is young and is showing their talent and is getting out there with their writing, so I really commend Hayley, and it is a really great short story, and I did enjoy it. I just, of course, have things that I have picked up on, which isn't meant to be said with, you know, like callously or with venom it's more just like areas for improvement i know that Haley is much older now and probably in their well, so this was 2012 so probably about my age no yeah oh my god they're my age cool um anyway but yeah it's just said with the intention of you know it, it's good but you know these were the areas for improvement and this is from coming from like a much older perspective of course but um Yeah, as always, I've got my points to focus on, so today we've got narrative, consequence, and generally what I thought of it. Uh, There isn't a synopsis for this episode because it's a short story, and the overview will basically cover that for me anyway. So let's head into the overview. Howard Claymore is a studier of death who seeks answers of the afterlife. While presenting for his new book, he finds himself engaging with a young boy who seeks immortality. Or at least, a way to, you know, cheat death. Which is basically the same thing, I don't know why I summarised that. (laughs) After his meeting, Claymore finds himself being stalked by a Miss Lamia from his performance, demanding to know where the boy, Alabaster, her brother, is. While at a cafe the next day with his friend, he tries to get some writing done when he finds himself trapped in a magical, mist-created world with Miss Lamia, who is out for blood. (laughs) Blood, blood. (laughs) I don't know why I said it in such a weird way. Finding Alabaster, oh god, 
Claymore tries to find out what the hell is going on and finds out that the world of mythology is actually real. Miss Lamia on their heels, they try to escape but have no way to get out from her clutches. Claymore, seeing the young boy who has no one and is in danger, sacrifices himself to give him the chance to find the spell to defeat Miss Lamia. In the underworld, he meets Alabaster's godly parent, Hecate, who thanks him for the sacrifice and asks him to look after Alabaster. She couldn't let her children destroy each other, as they're the only children she has left. All her other kids had followed Alabaster, the most powerful, into battle for the Titans and died, which is why she has found a way to separate Lamia and Alabaster so they can both survive but be separate so they will both be safe. With the power of the mist, he is returned to Alabaster and the two work together to find out who Hecate is praying to and an answer for immortality. Dun dun dun! This was a really interesting short story, I'm going to say that. Um, and I'm going to get into a few more things obviously with the narrative and consequence section. But I do have to give major props because this story actually adds a lot of interesting things to the lore of Heroes of Olympus, as well as contradicting a few things here and there. Um, most interesting part for me is the fact that this adds so much to the world building from Percy Jackson. Percy? Why did I say that so weird? For, to Percy Jackson that I feel like the Percy Jackson series itself really missed out on. And that is in particular focusing on minor god children. This is an issue that I've had a lot with the Heroes of Olympus series is that it's meant to be seven demigods who... I know they're meant to be the seven most powerful demigods but I feel like it would have been so... Considering this whole focus on how the minor gods were like forgotten in the past in Percy Jackson and the Olympians and it was all about giving them recognition. I always kind of hoped that here's Olympus one of the seven would have been a child of a minor god just because that message from the previous series would have hit home more because there is a connection there whereas kind of what the series had instead was they just connected children of the seven to minor gods in the case of like Hazel learning magic from Hecate and that's it oh my god <laughs> that's it and then I guess Jason doing the, you know the statues and um the recognizing of the other gods and minor gods and monsters and stuff like that well no not monsters all the minor gods so I guess he's connected to minor gods in some way but that's kind of it and that's a little bit disappointing because the importance for minor gods that was meant to be there isn't ever really there we don't ever actually have a main character, except for maybe Lavinia in Trials of Apollo, who is connected to a minor god. And I wouldn't even call Lavinia a main character. Like, she's, because she's only in one book, and somewhat central, but not really at the same time. Anyway, sorry, moving on, getting to the main thing. I like that Alabaster is a child of Hecate, and a powerful child of Hecate as well. And the fact that Alabaster was someone who fought for the Titans. And we're seeing the consequence of that whole battle and all the demigods that were on the Titans' side and what happened with them. Because we never knew what happened with them. That was a huge thing that was never actually talked about ever in the series of what happened to the demigods who sided with the Titans. 
like obviously we know some died but we don't ever actually know what happened to them um and i was just, i just thought it was really interesting to see one who in a sense still sided with the titans we're going to feedback section of this more so so this is where some of the critique elements come in um and this is something that i've talked about a little bit with rick's writing and it's unfortunately very common in middle grade works i find that have like magical and you know bad guy sort of characters um and that's the fat shaming fat shaming is like a huge thing that appears in works with bad people in them um they're either women or they're fat or they're fat women like that's literally the two different kinds of things sometimes obviously they're guys but and occasionally the guys would be like fat as well but it's just the, yeah the fat shaming is just not it because like there's a comment and it's to do with uh miss lamia and there's a whole scene where claymore makes a comment about how he's surprised that the heels of the woman's shoes haven't collapsed beneath her due to her being so tall and being a large woman and then even commenting about the hunger in her voice probably being about having hunger for cookies um not a fan very 2012 writing and yeah it just not a fan of a quite this is just a consistent thing like it, it happens a lot with villainous characters particularly villainous women they're either very beauty femme fatale or very ugly and or fat <laughs> it's just like why what is the reason and this just happened to be another case there's actually no justification given for why miss lamia has to be a larger woman like there was no reasoning behind it at all she just was and and then her being a monster it was kind of like oh, okay so that's why <laughs> um it was very much like it just it was giving the harry potter fat shaming situation you know of how basically every not every okay not every i'll take that back but almost all villainous women in harry potter are described as fat and ugly and it was like that that was a part of their villainousness or their ugliness as a person was tied to their physical appearance um even like roald dahl if you're if you're a fat person you're a bad person um and you know that was that was 90s and early 2000s you'd think we'd have grown out of that now in fiction but it's definitely a consistent trope and it's one that i really do hope that we grow out of so i just wanted to bring that up more just on a fundamental level of this is an issue that is still there in fiction and probably shouldn't be but there's also a kid who probably grew up reading harry potter and roald dahl and all that sort of stuff so the influence is there i completely understand that um the other thing that i have is that i'm somewhat confused so this was the going back to the sort of law aspects of percy jackson i'm confused to how claymore's just a general random gun worked against lamia like full of like blew apart her face didn't like hurt her it kind of irritated her and slowed her down in some areas so it technically did work against her but didn't like stop or destroy her but like everything that i've heard and everything we've read mortal weapons literally are not meant to do anything like nothing unless there's celestial bronze in the bullet or imperial gold they should not be able to do anything and yet 
he blows out her eye, he blows out her leg, he's able to, this random mortal human is able to land a punch against this monster and it works for a little bit, like he managed to knock her off guard and is able to get away, although in this case it turns out that she was kind of letting him, but still, his gun is working in giving her damage even though it doesn't last because like in this case we obviously find out also that Gaia is involved and that's why the sand keeps putting her back together and all that sort of stuff but either way nothing should have been able to be blown out of her because guns don't work against monsters human weapons don't work against monsters and just like we have this whole thing in the last the Olympian where like Sally and Paul, I'm pretty sure they both pick up, like, celestial bronze things to fight with. Unless I'm wrong, but I don't know. Now I'm confused. Because <laughs> that was, like, a huge thing that mortal weapons don't work against monsters. Same as how demigod celestial bronze and imperial gold don't work against mortals. I don't know. Maybe I'm just forgetting something. I've just completely glazed over something that changed it. But I swear that was part of the law. Um... I don't know. Anyway, let's move into the main focus points of this episode, which is narrative. Because I love this narrative. I may have some critiques, but the narrative of this, Son of Magic, actually fills in a lot of blank spots that I've always felt were missing in the series. Um, namely, what happened to the surviving demigod who chose the Titans over the gods, were they brought to camp, were they killed? And we basically got our answers here of, it's a little bit of both. Um, in the case of Alabaster, he was someone who still didn't trust or agree with the gods. And I'm like, yeah, no, fair enough. Why would you? The gods really haven't changed. Yeah, they may have gotten their marching orders from Percy, but they haven't changed fundamentally. They just have to recognise minor gods' children's now. That's literally it. And their own children like that's it <laughs> that's bare minimum that they don't even get right um and yeah uh it's also just interesting that we're following a minor god's child in some way like we haven't really done that at all like i said throughout the entirety of the royal verse so it's interesting to do it here um we get the setup to do with the guy situation um which also adds more to heroes of olympus um and there is a bit of an open ending for the story which is I will say a little bit disappointing because it never, as far as I'm aware, actually gets resolved. I'm surprised. Okay, this is a big thing. It should have been resolved because this story came out around the time Mark of Athena was coming out. So we had two more books coming of House of Hades and Blood of Olympus. And as far as I'm aware, Alabaster and Claymore do not appear in those books and he should have i feel because he may, he like threatens percy he hates percy i feel like he may have joined gaia like i feel like that's a possibility um i don't know there's just there was potential for alabaster to reappear and yet this story while it adds so much is seemingly not recognized via canon because there is no reference to any of this again which is disappointing because like it brings up really interesting things like how the gods really suck <laughs> and even how Camp Half-Blood kind of does as well 
because the, the reason why Alabaster is not at Camp Half-Blood is because he still doesn't side with the gods because why would he? There's literally no reason. All of his siblings died in, in the Titan War. He blames himself for it. I will say I'm kind of surprised that he's considered the most powerful child of Hecate because he is a child, like maybe maybe around Percy's age at the start of The Lightning Thief, maybe a little bit older. We kind of don't get an age, I realise, but definitely no more than a young teen. And is meant to, but admittedly we've got the seven and, you know, plot armour, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, but the reason why he's not allowed at Camp Half-Blood is because he still doesn't side with the gods. He still sees them as the enemy. And again, why wouldn't he? They've given no reason to think of them otherwise. And he's not allowed them because they believe he'll corrupt everyone at Camp Half-Blood. Which, considering, you know, the sort of hierarchy that does happen within Camp Half-Blood, like, I know people bond together, but there's still a lot of rivalries. I don't think anyone would listen to a child of Hecate. Um, which sounds mean, but it's <laughs> it's very realistic because there is very much a, you know, focus on your own cabin and maybe build friends with others, but... No one seems to really do that outside of our main group of characters. But yeah, that was actually it. So he's basically been banished from everything because he doesn't believe in the gods because they suck. Or at least the main Olympians. Obviously he believes in his mother, Hecate. But he sees no reason to support, you know, the Olympian gods because what have they ever done for him? And again, you know, quite rightly... And that kind of leads into this consequence section that this story sort of covers, which is this is the first time we're actually seeing the consequence for what the gods have done. Like all of the children of Hecate, except for Alabaster, are dead. Um, and like I said, because he doesn't back down and he still hates the gods, he's just kind of proving that the gods are just kind of proving that the, the kids who fought on the Titan side, you know, that, that they were right because they were basically all the, all the ones that survived were hunted down, captured brought back to Camp Half-Blood um, and seemingly given the choice of, you know, die or be rehabilitated which, you know <laughs> isn't exactly much of a choice um, we also don't actually because this is not addressed in the series this might sort of like a huge like blind spot in this series of did did these demigods go out and kill other demigods that were on the titan side because they wouldn't come back to camp half-blood like did they go out and kill them that's a question i know and it's a dark question but it's a question i would like answered because what did happen to the demigods who fought in the titan war and still didn't want to go back to camp half-blood because they didn't believe in the gods or they didn't want anything to do with the Olympian gods. I feel like they're dead. And the fact that that's not addressed. And the fact that there isn't a source of anger within the series is a problem. Because that should be a big source of anger. Especially from Percy. Because that goes against everything that he believed in. If anything, that should prove to the Seven more than anything. That the gods aren't people to believe in. Because they're shitty people. I'm like, Anabasta's anger has led to him being forced to flee. His own mother, who still didn't want to support like the Olympians, then had to choose between surrendering to them and have like she could only 
basically she could surrender to the gods and have Alabaster survive but be banished for life or if she didn't surrender they'd kill her only son like that was her options and so he's seen yeah they're just as bad as they always were they literally they've given me no reason to see them differently because they aren't different they've just been in a sense manhandled by a son of Poseidon to do basically to recognize their own kids and the minor gods kids but other than that they've changed in no other way and even with that they technically haven't changed as we see in later series because you know they don't really recognize the kids very much um but i will say it's somewhat refreshing to see the continued hatred towards the gods because they do still suck like (laughs) they don't change which is why I'm kind of disappointed that Alabaster isn't in the main series. Like from what I remember, this is the only place where the resent uh, this is the only story where the resentment towards the gods is still explored. There doesn't seem to be much of that in Heroes of Olympus. There is a little bit of entrance of Apollo, I will admit that, and quite a bit of it comes from Apollo, which is quite refreshing. But there is no discussion of the fallout of the Titan War, there was no discussion of the continued mistreatment from the gods. Like, the gods aren't different, they haven't changed. And that's that's the problem. That the issues that led to demigods choosing the Titans over the gods are still there. Just the narrative just never addressed them. And never address the consequence of everything but this short story ironically by rick's son so not even by rick himself so rick's son recognized the missing elements and the resolving aspects of the story in this short story called son of magic than the actual series does and i think it was i think it was a really good story i think yeah there are issues with it what issues aren't in anything fiction wise but i think this just it adds a lot to the lore of the series it adds a lot to the missing points of the narrative that have frustrated me that they aren't there and that we don't have these answers of what happened to the kids who chose the titans who lived after the war and this kind of answers it in some way and it's dark which is i i appreciate um and yeah i just i think Haley did a really good job um and you know major props major props um but yeah that's basically all i kind of have to say about the son of magic story i think it was really good it answered a lot of questions that i feel i had though it does raise more but you know that's always going to be the case with me um and yeah i liked it so for this week's question episode uh what did you think of the son of magic short story i'll be going up on our social media so be sure to check that out um and yeah uh this was a lot of fun uh as always like i want to mention be sure to check me out on patreon if you haven't already because that's the best place you can support me there and also check out echoes of the past my prequel short story for the into the world series which is out now on all ebook platforms link in the episode show notes um and yeah thank you all for joining me for this bonus short story be sure to join me next week as we continue our own verse journey with the next king chronicle story the throne of fire 
To plug where you can find our podcast, we are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Audio Boom, Stitcher, and basically where we listen to your podcasts. In the meantime, between episodes, you can find the Best Damn Camp on various social media at Best Damn Camp Pod on Instagram and Twitter. If you want to email me with your thoughts on the episode, you can email the Best Damn Camp at hotmail.com, or if you want to support the podcast, you can head over to the Patreon page at patreon.com slash a healthy dose of Fran, which is linked in the episode show notes for things like early access to episodes and other exclusive perks. Want more Royal Universe content? Check me out on YouTube at a healthy dose of Fran. And if you want to support my writing career, drop me a follow at a dose of Fran on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Again, thank you all for tuning in. As always, I've been Fran, your very own hunter, and I'll see, shall I speak to you all next time. Bye.